and welcome to another edition of the Fat Tail Investment Podcast. I'm Callum Newman, and today we're talking oil and energy. Very, very important what's going on. Um, as a background to this, you're well aware that Russia has invaded Ukraine. It's sent oil to its highest price since 2014. It peaked a couple of weeks ago at US $139. Now, we've seen it retrace a little bit. So what is going on out there in oil? This is really interesting for me. A couple of years ago, 2018, 2019, I studied oil quite intensely, actually. And at that time, there were uh, new shipping rules to come in, and they were due in 2020. Uh, and they had the potential at that time to spike, to spike the oil sector um, because it would have been a repeat of what happened in 2008. So that's why I got interested. In the end, that didn't work. Uh, in a sense that all that research never paid off. But here we go a couple of years later and we are in an oil disruption, a big one or a potential big one, I should say. So the question is, uh, where do we go from here? So I, I dragged out all my old notes and it's really interesting to see uh, where this could go. Reason being that there is a chart that I share from time to time talking about the historic oil disruptions throughout history. And you, you, if you've got any sort of market um, history in mind, you're thinking the Arab embargo of 1973, the Iranian revolution, 1979, price collapse in 1986. There's the Gulf War in 1991, the spike in 2008. Then the run-up over 100 to about the shale war, which happened in about 2014, that collapsed again. So, you know, oil has been a massive roller coaster always for 50 years or more. Anyway, every time we've had a big spike in oil, it's it's usually a supply disruption. And what I noticed is that it often doesn't take many or much percentage of the market to send the oil into panic mode. So I'm in 1973. I think it was uh, the stats was it was only about two percent that came offline, but it spent it sent the price up two hundred percent. And in in the Gulf War, it was half a percent supply loss. Uh, and it sent the price up over 50%. Usually these are, in a sense, quick. So, so the, the, the price will spike up, not to say that it stays that high for, for a long, long time, but it can do a lot of damage uh, while that happens. One of the things I learned about these disruptions is that the reason you get the spike is people start hoarding the oil. Because When I say people, I mean like, end users like refiners, et cetera, because they, they want to be sure that they've got the supply coming online, even if there's lots of in inventory already there. The reason Russia is important is because it's such a massive supplier of oil to the world market. Now, as we're recording this, Russian oil is still theoretically available. Like it, uh, it can go to China, it can go to Japan, who both, uh, Japan said recently, look, that you know they kind of have to have it they can't just cut it off because they they have no uh, natural resources of their own, and they're very dependent on on imports coming in. But the shift is is against Russia, so those that can avoid it will. And so the question is, how big is this disruption going to be? So as of now, it, it's in terms of actual oil getting to the market, it it doesn't seem to be that big. But if it gets any bigger then we could see definitely oil spike up even higher than it is now. And it's, and I say, well, it's around about $100. As a side junk to this, I this year 
or and even late last year was already looking at oil equities because they were so cheap like oil has been in an uptrend previously from remembering that it hit zero in 2020 it trended up to around 80 bucks a barrel so there's good good margins there but oil stocks hadn't really done anything for ages had a lot of pressure put on them from the environmental and climate change con- concerns in the investment markets so there was value there at least one way of looking at it and what i like to do is follow stocks oil stocks that are about to drill new wells so to bring on more more uh, reserves to their to their company because you can get good trades away in them. So we have a pretty interesting mix to be following oil, and you could apply this to natural gas and, and coal in a way too. They're, they're both being disrupted. Interesting mix at the moment where oil is still very high, even though it's receded a little bit around that $90 a barrel is big margins for anyone pumping oil at the moment. And it's one of the few sectors of, of in the market at the moment where you can find earnings that are going up. I mean, it's tough out there at the moment. The ASX is flat, flat, flat. It is not easy to, to rip gains out of this market currently. So anything that shows a bit of life is could attract lots of interest and speculation. Having said all that, one thing I learned about oil, as I said, I thought there was a, a chance of it doing this a couple of years ago. It didn't happen. And in fact, COVID came along and, and absolutely smashed the whole thing to smithereens. So should the Russian-Ukraine situation stabilize and or in some way bring Russian oil or keep it in the market, I should say, obviously the price will fall back because that, that uncertainty and war premium will fall away. To get an insight on what's going on in oil right now, I got uh, a guy called Mark Rosano on the line who's based in New York. He runs his own private equity firm but has has spent many years analysing energy markets. And we talked about what is going on in the US, what he thinks about the geopolitical situation. Mark, it's amazing that you're on today because if I get up this morning and I read uh, that the US has banned Russian oil coming in and coal and all that type of thing. So we have this yep. massive disruption going on in the oil market. Just before we dive into the Ukraine and Russian situation, what was your view of the oil sector before this all started? Did you think, like when you had an outlook for 2022, what did you think was going to happen? You know, when I was looking at 2022, I thought we were going to come into a bit of an oversupply uh, just because I, I thought inflation was going to bite the consumer a bit uh, and you were going to start to see some of that demand destruction that we normally get when you start to see this elevated price. So now when you look at where things have shifted and how you have inflation going parabolic, because we were already seeing uh, food prices going higher, we were seeing these pressure points. And now with where things are, you know, I think that's just going to accelerate the, some of this demand destruction which is going to make it very difficult and uh, increase the volatility when you start looking at crude prices themselves. So just how big is this shift of banning Russian oil then? Like it seems very significant because they're such a big part of the market. So it's a big part of the market for the U S I've done for not so much for the U S but for the rest of the world, when you think about where they export. So if you just look at, what they're putting into the market for and, and break it into their three big pieces of Urals, ESPO, and Siberian Light or Sokol, you know, you get an idea of kind of where things are flowing. So China is going to continue to buy, India is going to continue to buy, and we should see that moving from the eastern part of Russia. The problem is with Urals and where they're located, 
even if you want to buy it, can you? You know, what is the day rate going to be? What is insurance going to be? Is insurance in dollars? You know, if it's in dollars, get how do you get around that? And would you accept ruble or some other uh, or, or some other currency? And if you use your own currency, well, what is the valuation of of say a rupee to a ruble if you're trying to move outside of the system? So when you look at some of the shifts for the U.S. itself. We're not a huge importer of, of euros, but we have been a big importer of diesel. And the question is, how do you replace the diesel? Because it's not just the oil side, it's also refined products. And that becomes a much bigger issue, especially when you look at the East Coast, which has been net short on the diesel front, and just the amount of, uh, of, of middle distillate in that diesel side that continues to be uh, consumed globally, just leaving this big shortfall. Just... Uh... Not many people know, but oil, as far as I understand it, breaks into roughly two categories where you have the sweet oil and the sour oil. Mm-hmm. Where And that leads to which products it's better for. Where does Russian Correct. oil those baskets? So when you're on the ESPO and SoCo side, so when you're going further uh, east, that is going to be uh, on the medium sweet front. So it's going to be something that is what we like to call like the Goldilocks, where it can pretty much do anything. And because so the good it's sweet, stuff then. yeah. And, and just to, and just to clarify, sweet is how much sulfur is in it, because if it's something that is sweet, it means it has a very low sulfur con- uh, content. And if it's sour, there's a lot of sulfur. So there's different ways to take sulfur out of oil. There's one that you run it through a coking process, which you heat it up, you can remove the sulfur and you can do it in large quantities. And then the other is on a desulfurization unit. The problem is the desulfurization units are very inefficient. So it's very easy to overwhelm them, which when you look at Urals, it's a little bit on the sour side. It's about, uh, I think about a percent in terms of sulfur with it. And just to put that into context, you know, uh, oil sands coming out of Canada is uh, over 3%. So it's definitely on the, uh, on the sour side, but it's something that you can blend. So what the European refiners were doing was taking uh, Russian crude urals and then taking U.S. crude and splash blending them to create a very uh, healthy product cut. So do, does the disruption to Russian oil then affect the the end users like the refiners? Do you think for some foreseeable future? Yes. Uh, you know the bigger issue is, is as you said on the refining side because you not all crude is created equal. Like every time you see the news, they're like, oh. Just, just, just increase. Just turn on more. You're in the U.S. Just, just turn the the switch. It's like, well, you have to look at what kind of oil are we are we are we trying to replace. You know, when you look at something that is is 29 or 30 API, which is just the viscosity, you know, you have to look at well, what is U.S. shale? U.S. shale is 42 to 48, so it's not the same. Like you can't just take one and replace it with the other. You have to replace that specific type. So when you start looking at refiners, they have to go out and, and source other barrels that are of similar, uh, similar quality, which is why the Iranian deal continues to get uh, brought up because Iran, uh, Iranian light is very similar to Ural's and it can be a straight swap. So then you start looking at, okay, well, what about Venezuela? What about Libya? So when you start looking at some of the, uh, the options, you can take in additional Iraqi, uh, Saudi Arabian, you know, that, that uh, Gulf Cooperation Council, those countries. So there is opportunity, and that's what you're starting to see, because some of them are priced in dated Brent, which is just a basket of crudes out of uh, Europe, and then the other are priced in Oman, Dubai, 
And uh, you, you'll, you'll be surprised to know that the spread is blown out $14. So if I'm a refiner, it's like, okay, well, I can go buy West African crude at dated Brent, or I can go buy Saudi Arabian oil at Oman, Dubai, and, and save almost you know, as, wide, as much as 14 bucks. So that's when you start to see them trying to also get specific of not only the type, but also where is the locale and what is that spread that I can try to capture. Just yesterday, I went and looked back at the Gulf War in 1991, actually, and it was sort of seemed similar in the sense that you had an invasion, a disruption to a, a major producing area, mm-hmm. and the oil spiked up, and it lasted for about three months. And then it seemed that the market decided, well, actually, the U.S. is just going to come in and, and take care of this, and oil started to go down before the U.S. had even gone in. Right. Do you sort of see something similar like that happening? The problem is always going to be the uh, there's always that perception like what is the financial markets doing and then what is the physical market doing. So the physical market right now is saying there isn't a huge panic and and when you start looking at what is in the market, it's that panic side of well are the refiners really worried like are, are we watching them go out and start bidding up these barrels and the answer is no. So right now you have a lot of macro, you have a lot of financial, which is driving the paper markets, which is something that you saw in Kuwait when you look at you know what was happening with Saddam Hussein moving into you know taking control. <clears throat> you had this big move on the futures market, but there wasn't as much panic on the refining side, and you're some- seeing something similar. Now the problem is going to be how long does this last? When and so there was the view, as you said where the US is gonna come in, clean house and, and take care of this, we're not as clear as to how this ends. And, and that is gonna to start to lead to a bit more panic, which I think that it's going to, you're gonna to have to look at West African crudes, Nigerian and Angola, to get an idea of how much are refiners starting to panic. And if you start to see that, you could see some additional life get brought into where the uh, futures and paper market is taking us. There's a guy called PK Verlerga, which I've followed for years, and he says generally in these disruptions, one of the things that exacerbate is that users start hoarding it, even though there might be lots of stuff yeah. around, but they're like, well, I just better make extra sure. Um, is that the kind of thing that you'll be watching for, that, that kind of mentality? Yes. So the, one of the things that we, that we look at very closely is uh, floating storage and then obviously onshore storage, but it's very easy to, to get to get focused on the onshore and forget that you can actually leave this in a tanker offshore as well. And so far, the offshore market hasn't really seen this kind of panic because that's the most expensive. That's the one that you're going to try to pull down as quickly as possible. Because you know, me on a tank, it could cost anywhere from 30 cents to you know two dollars, depending on what where we are in the world, uh, to store it on on a uh, in a tank on land, but on offshore. There's a lot that comes in, and you have to start seeing the cost become not it be, becomes meaningful. It could be anywhere six, eight, twelve dollars, depending on what the market looks like. And if you start to see that that panic, that's when you start to see those move quickly because it's like, okay, I'm going to bring those in. And then if you start seeing more and more getting built up offshore, that's the hoarding. That's the one where it's like, look, we filled up onshore. Now it's offshore. Now we need to make sure that we're we're comfortable. And, and that's what you're going to be looking for is how much is sitting offshore, how much is being moved through, are refiners starting to, uh, to panic a bit, are they starting to build up some of the additional, uh, additional product? And so far, we haven't seen much of that. 
In terms of the US producers, um, do you think right now that they they would be trying to lock in their production at these prices? I mean, it seems like a real gift to go if you you know were struggling with fifty dollar oil just eighteen months ago, and now you're like, yeah. wow, I can just lock in. Do you expect to see them start selling into this market in a big way? Yeah, I think you're going to start to see them looking to to lock in as much as they can, which is why like one of the things that that we talk about on the EIA show is where's the curve. You know, where is the curve and, and can I get the exposure and I can lock in some of these prices, whether that be put spreads, outright puts, swap, something that would allow them to lock in some of these elevated prices. Because as you said, you know, people were, 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 uh, were worried at $50 and now we're sitting here with the WTI front month at 125 You know, why wouldn't you try to lock in something going out the, the next, let's call it year and a half or like 18 to 24 months? And lock in something that's over eighty bucks, because I mean, realistically, a lot of this uh, the uh, the acreage works at that price point. Um, it, just to turn it a little bit to the other big market, which is natural gas for Russia, do you see any threat of them turning off the taps to Europe in this war situation? If the, as a retaliation to all the sanctions and and the business divestment that we're seeing happen. You know, the, the biggest issue for Russia is they're short on storage. So the, the problem becomes, if I can't send it to anyone, I have to shut in. And if I have to turn off the taps, what does that do to my equipment, to the rock? So they're, they're kind of caught between these two different points, <clears throat> and they still need money. And, and as long as this continues to flow... It, the question will be, well, how are they taking delivery? Is it, is it in euros? Are they moving things through? Because as we all know, war is expensive and you have to pay people to go out and do what you need to do, buy equipment, you know, all these different pieces that go through the logistical puzzle. So it's in. they also need cash flow. So they're going to be incentivized to push through as much as they can, as long as they can, because the moment they turn off the taps, the clock starts ticking on when they have to start shutting in. Because even on, on the uh, crude side, for an example, when you look at both, <clears throat> on the crude side, they only have eight days of storage. So if, if they start having a, an, an issue with what that storage looks like, well, then they have to shut in. And as, as we know, it, it's, it tends to be a little cold in large parts of Russia where they produce. And some of these places have not been shut down for long periods of time. We don't know what would happen to the equipment. We don't know what would happen to the rock. And a lot of this equipment, is our German uh, top uh, um, uh, top drives? They're they're European products. They're U.S. products. And the question will be, if they start you know seizing up or freeze off and they have to be replaced, can they get the actual equipment? So they're also going to be a little panicked on, can we actually turn it off and turn it right back on? Um. So basically, we have China, which is the biggest importer of oil. Now they're getting burnt with the high prices. Do you think this is beginning will begin to damage China's economy, or would you think they'll start releasing inventory, something to cool it down from their end? How do you see China so, here? So it's a it's a great point because I, I think especially people in the West and and the myopic Americans, as we can call them, because I am one, so I, I can say that <laughs> the uh, the the biggest issue is. You know, everyone likes to think that America is this big behemoth, but China is the huge demand driver, and and that's what we've seen over the last you know decade of China really taking the um, the lead when you look at at oil growth. 
And they, they the problem for, for China right now is they've had a weak consumer for years. This is not something where they haven't been in a very good spot and they've now struggled. And, and uh, President Xi has launched different initiatives. You had the dual circulation strategy, which was to promote local growth, local consumption, <clears throat> local production. And then they ramped it up again with um with the uh the the, the uh was it the dual momentum or uh um uh the there was one other prior it'll come to me in a minute that that looks at trying to to promote additional spending and the the issue right now is they can't get the spending where they need it to be they've tried to get away from the export market they've tried to increase the local consumption but they've had to do that at the expense of trying to shield them from inflation so when you look at like factory gate prices, or if you look at PPI, you know, producer price index versus you know, Chinese CPI, consumer price index, there's a huge divergence where how, when does that collapse? Because how, at what point can you no longer push it into the export market and you have to start uh, pushing it into the, the local con, uh, consumer, which has already been weak. You know, when you look at growth between the small, medium and, and uh, large businesses, Small and medium businesses have been struggling. Large has done well with the micro business getting absolutely crushed. And the small and micro businesses are the ones that really sell local, that, that, that employ a lot of people. So China is already at, the, at this precipice of when do we raise prices? And this is only going to push them even further in the red when you look at what kind of options they have to not only insulate the consumer, but also their companies because they need to show growth. They, they put a number out there of 5.5% and they're gonna try to find the cheapest crude as, 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 you know, the cheapest crude available. So they will let Russia sweat to make sure those prices continue to fall, that they keep taking those prices down, but they will be beholden buyers because they need to feed the beast. They have to get people working and they're kind of caught in the middle in terms of how are they gonna pass the price on while trying to achieve this this, uh, what I think is an unachievable GDP goal, uh, goal. So your view then is that China is is weak at the moment and and likely to stay that way. Yes, they, they've been in a, in a tough spot on the employment side. And if you look at what they've done on the PBOC, CCP side, they've continuously issued a significant amount of, of stimulus, whether that be tax revenue uh, cuts, you know, uh, uh, cuts in terms of uh, VAT taxes and other forms of taxes. And then when you look at outright stimulus in terms of rate cuts, in terms of liquidity injections, they've only had a one-way street since, since 2008. They had some, some tightening in 2010. And then since 2014, it, in 2011 into 2014, they've just continuously cut and eased. So you, get, you run into the law of diminishing returns because how much can you continue to ease and achieve what you want to achieve in terms of additional spending, additional investment? And that's where you've seen them fall under harder times and the problems are only getting worse. Now, if you look at what they've done with, with uh, coal, you know, going back to Australia and, and what the, the back and forth has been between Australia, not all coal is created equal. And they've struggled to replace Australian coal. They've, they've struggled to replace things. So they're already taking hits on other, side, uh, other sides of the energy pool and the energy basket so you know, uh, Brent at at one twenty eight is not going to be something that they can tolerate uh, for a long period of time without seeing some significant damage 
to the consumer and to what their exports will be just on just based on pure price. So with the oil situation in the energy markets, where are you looking for opportunities then? So for me, it's in, in the, uh, the raw material space. I think the raw material space has a lot of opportunity uh, when you look at just where the shortfalls are and, and what the, uh, the issues are going to be. Because one of the things is if, if Putin stands up and goes, guys, my bad, uh, we're just, we're just going to go home. We, we, we didn't know it was going to go this far. You know, it's our fault. If that, I mean, things don't just go back to normal. You don't just snap back and say, okay, this is fine. You have, you have railroads that were destroyed, bridges, ports, things that have to be rebuilt. And, and, you know, where are those people? Are, are they, are, had, did they, did they leave? Did they come back? You know, you're going to see a lot of disruption in the raw material space. So I think that there is a, a lot within that area. I think inflation is really starting to, uh, to ramp up. So when I look at gold, gold, gold miners, uh, especially based on what comes out of, uh, of Russia. And then when you start looking at the energy space, I, I think that there's opportunity that continues to be in the LN- on the LNG front, uh, especially when you look at how much demand is going to continue to grow uh, in, in the area. I mean, given they're very rich now, but I think when you start looking at the producers, the natural gas producers and the natural gas liquids producers, there is a lot of opportunity when you look at where things could go not are you just thinking on the, then, so of, the, of the U.S. producers who will then start shipping to Europe to replace lost Russian gas? Correct. Yes, but then when you look at China and India, there's been a big pivot to increasing their their uh, their production of petrochemicals. So that but that takes not so much oil as it takes a lot of natural gas liquids. So the U.S. is in a very good position to export LPG. Other types, you know, ethane exports have been increasing. Ethylene exports have been increasing into uh, into China. So when you start looking at the NGL basket, there's a lot of opportunity as well. And then, like when you look at what is coming out of Australia, uh, you know, looking at the LNG front, but there's also a lot of naphtha. And when you start looking at the disruptions out of Russia, everybody likes to talk about oil, but forgets that they also export a lot of condensate. And a lot of naphtha, and how is that going to be replaced? And that's why Iran comes back into the into, into the discussion. And then there is that condensate that can be sold from Australia that would have uh, additional value. Condensate is really high gravity oil. Is that right? I don't know. Yes. Yeah. So uh, there's t- there's typically different levels. You have you have light naphtha, heavy naphtha, and gas oil are the three kind of you know buckets, if you will, and they all kind of consolidate into. Uh, into naphtha, uh, into condensate, which is typically anything that's over, I think they say 52 or 54 And what's it used for? So it's used for a lot of things. Uh, It can be used at the refining level. Uh, So you can have either a hydro skimmer or a um, a, uh, alkylation unit. So if you have an an alkyl unit, you can run naphtha into that. Uh, And and then when you have a petrochemical facility. So typically a, a petrochemical can run on a, on a multiple different types of feedstocks. An ethane cracker has to be 87, a minimum of 87% ethane. So that you're beholden to. But the when you have different crackers, whether it's propane or, uh, or naphtha-based, that's when you can start to see a lot of these shifts and a lot of these pivots to increase the naphtha consumption because they produce a lot of high-value end products of like high-density polyethylene and other types of plastics that are in high demand when you start looking at EVs, when you start looking at the green technology and just the amount of uh, plastics we're consuming in, in the world today. 
Well, you just mentioned EVs there. Is that a trend that you're following? Yes. yes. And then would you see this, again, this disruption of everybody going, oh, God, here we go again with the oil thing. Is this going to, do you think this helps accelerate that trend? You know, it's funny because when you look at the, the different shifts, you have to look at, well, we're, we're mad at Russia and we've had issues with Russia, which have only been increasing since, you know, I, let's just call it since the uh, 2008. But then when you look at, well, okay, well, we'll get away from oil and we're going to go deep into the EV green space. And then you look at who controls the supply chain and it's like, oh, it's China. So it's like, so we're going to go from one who we don't like and haven't liked to one that we are, are liking less and less by the day. You know, is it like fire, frying pan to the fire type thing? So I think that there's there's always going to be that balance. And, and the question will be, what does that balance look like? And, and Africa uh, is looking to get away from the Belt and Road Initiative. They're looking to diversify some of their investors. Uh, so I think that there's an opportunity for US, European investors to get more involved in the mining and operations within Australia and to uh, help diversify the supply chain, if you will, outside of just China. Because they, they I mean, they consume a significant amount of rare earths, they consume a lot of these uh, raw materials, and they process most of it. So when you look at batteries, when you look at EVs, a lot of this is still coming from China. So how do you get away from that and diversify before we get to the situation we currently find ourselves in with Russia? Just to swing back to oil slightly, previous to the Ukraine disruption, the, the futures market was trending up and a lot of people go, oh, there's, there hasn't been enough investment in oil and gas. Now, that may be true. At the moment, there's pretty good inventories. You're saying the physical market's not that worried yet. Do you think that there has been, since about the crash of 2014, an underinvestment in gas that will show up at some point if, if oil use stays roughly where it is now? So it's a mixture because it's different locations. Like Because if you look at Latin America, you look at Guyana, you look at Suriname, you look at Brazil – They've been investing the whole time. So there's, there's the flow to come from there. And then you look at West Africa, that's a problem. You know, West Africa has not seen the investment. They have seen some of the degradation. So they're going to be, uh, you know, uh, on the decline and they're going to have to attract some investment. But then on the Middle East side and you look at where things are, you know, those are, those are state-owned companies and, and they, they play the game and they play the game very well. And the game was, don't talk about your oil investments, only talk about your green investments and play those up. So when you look at what the UAE, Kuwait, Iraq, uh, Saudi Arabia has done, they've been very adamant about, well, look at what we're investing in, less Iraq, more of the GCC nations have been, look, look at what we're, what we're doing. We're investing in green, we're investing in solar, we're investing in, in, hy in hydrogen, but just ignore what we're doing behind us because that you know, and so there's been that balance. And now I think you're going to be a bit surprised in, in terms of what spare capacity it does exist when you look at the, um, the Middle Eastern countries. But it's also not just black and white. It's always a matter of, well, what is the balance? And if you look at natural gas, natural gas has been taking market share from diesel, from fuel oil. And, and I think that's going to continue. So even though there, there may be a lack of investment, say, in West Africa. Are we going to need the same black oil that we've needed previously? And, and, I, and I, don't, I think that's when you're going to start to see some of those declines because everybody loves to say 100 million barrels a, uh, a day of demand. 
Well, not all of that is oil. And that's when you have to get a bit more specific of about 60% of that is oil. So about 60 million barrels a day of black oil is consumed, which means 40 million is on the liquids front. So how much natural gas is going to take additional market share? You know, how much of that growth that we're going to see over the next decade? Because I do think you get that 100 million expanding. How much of that is going to be from LPG consumption and not because you're consuming heavy black oil? So we've had the spike in oil. There's obviously a war premium built in there at the moment. If there's some resolution to the Russian situation, I mean, would you turn around and go, well, oil's probably a short at that point? Would you be game enough to, to go to bet against it? Uh, if it, Yes, yes. I, I think that there is that premium that it would be a quick you know, $10 to $15 drop if there was some, to, see, to see some sort of resolution, which is what we saw. Like, uh, you know, there, was, uh, there were headlines coming out that Ukraine is not going to push for, for NATO uh, uh, to, you know, allowance into NATO. So then all of a sudden you saw crude just drop like a rock and it's like, all right, well, you're still at war. So that's the kind of thing where you're just playing the volatility. It's like, well, we know the war's not over, so I'm going to buy that because you're still, you still have tanks rumbling down the street. But then if you do that, which just, I think just shows that there's that skittishness, like everyone's looking for the reason to jump back in and I and 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 drive it back down. So I, I do think you would get a very quick ten to fifteen dollar drop if you saw Russia or and, and the Ukraine come to some sort of an, an agreement. Now I did a sneaky uh, message to Big Oren on Twitter, who uh, is always talking talking you up, and he said to ask you about something called the frac spread count in the yes. U.S., which I have got no idea what that is, but uh, he says that you come up with a very <laughs> accurate way of calculating what the US shale guys will produce. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So there's the rig count, which rigs poke holes in the ground. And then there's the frac spread count that actually comes out and fractures the well. So when you look at the rig, you know, a rig punches a hole. That hole well, I say that all there. the time, actually, that how many drilling rigs are active in America. Yeah. Because I mean, which is, it's a great, it's a great way to measure when you're looking excuse me, six, 12 months out, but those, those ducks are drilled, but uncompleted wells can sit there for an extended period of time. We're, we're tracking the frac spread count that is actually coming, uh, the coming into that, that well and going to turn it on to production. So where we have about a 30 to 60 day lag time on when, where production will be versus rigs, which is six to 12 months, because we're right on top of when these wells are going to be turned to market. So we're there when the, the when it goes from a duck drilled but uncompleted well to a completed well. So we're looking at what are the completions doing, what are the crews doing, and how many are currently active and is going to bring this new uh, new product to market. And um, <clears throat> what uh, in terms of uh, with these prices, I'm assuming there's just going to be barrels pouring out of the South of America or what <laughs> is that fair to say? You know, it, as much as they may want to, there are a lot of logistical issues that they're contending with. And, and it's something that I, I wrote an article about it uh, back in August where you, you had the rallying prices, you had prices going up, you had this view that prices were going to be elevated, but yet, you're struggling to hire people. There's a labor shortage. There was a prop in, you know, prop in has become an issue more, more recently. You have a steel shortage. You have a, a problem with availability of pipe and casing. So 
That was in 2021. When you look at where we were in August of 21, now we're in March of 22 and things have only gotten exponentially worse. So even if you wanted to, to increase production, if Exxon said, you know what, we're going to go into the Permian and we're going to increase production by 25%, you physically don't have the equipment to achieve that. And you have to look back to 2020 when a lot of this equipment was pulled to the sidelines. And when you look at horsepower, so you know the average frack spread has about anywhere from 38,000 to 48,000 uh, uh, horsepower available on that site. You know, then when you started to creep back up, well, it, it was still a low price. I still have to give a, a competitive cost. So I'm not going to go buy a new fluid and a new transmission. I'm going to go to the yard. I'm going to rip one out of that guy and I'll worry about that one later. So now you have a situation where a lot of these, avail the how, how much available horsepower is, is there? And it's not as much as people think because they've been stripped down and their ability to replace it is becoming uh, problematic. Like I just spoke to a guy the other day, you know, a, a delivery of pipe used to cost $42,000 in 2019, and it's currently 169,000 and rising. You know, that's a big issue. And, and it's not just because it, the price has gone up for steel. It's also the availability of steel. You know, this guy is like, I'm just one of the few that still has an inventory and I can charge whatever I want. And, and you're seeing a lot of these shortfalls and, and the logistical problem continues to uh, rear its ugly head. So in a sense, would, would you view that as support? So we touched a little bit that the, if the war premium came out of oil, it, it drops a little bit, but that would mm -hmm. uh, suggest that it's possible that oil still stays relatively high. So anything over 60, I assume is, is, is big bucks for, for those guys. So would you say, so you see roughly, and it's always hard to say, but like, oil staying in that somewhere between 50 and 100 range or is that too wide or yeah I, yes i would say that you there's a lot of support on why crude is going to live in the in the mid to upper 70s you know you you can you can argue is it 85 is it 75 i'm going to go out there and say it's 75 and and when you start looking at that you know to tighten that up a bit i think that you're in this 75 to 85 world because of the some of the shortfalls that we have on the logistics side, you know, and that's not something that's going to be quickly alleviated. And then labor, I mean, like just taking the U S for a moment, if you're looking, if, if I was a guy who was a rig hand or somebody who was on a, a frack spread, you know, a completions crew, it's like, okay, well, since 2014, I've been, uh, I've been fired how many times <laughs> and you want me to come back? No, I'm not coming back because I can go be a truck driver and make a ton of money. I can go into construction right now and make a ton of money. You need to incentivize me to come back. And, and that has become a very big problem. Is there It's been very difficult to attract new labor. Then take that from that side and then look at the politics where you're essentially told nobody's going to want your product. Your product is, is obsolete. Nobody's going to want it. Go home. So then you're like, all right, well, I'm being told that I'm going to be pushed out into oblivion. So why am I going to come back? Like if you look at Australian coal, if, if you've been told for the last decade, coal is dead, and now we need Australia to produce another 25 million tons, are you going to be able to find people to come and work? It's like, you just told me coal is dead. You want me to come work? And then you're going to fire me a year later. Like, I'm not doing that. I'm not putting my, my family through that. So you start having this 
this labor shortage because I can make more money elsewhere to, okay, well, now you're paying me enough, but can I be in this profession for the next three, you know, the next decade? Or is this going to be an 18 month stint? So, I mean, you mentioned coal there. I mean, the prices for coal are even more crazy for, than they are for oil. And probably the underinvestment is even worse. Um, can, can that be resolved anytime soon? As you say, nobody wants to pay for it. Nobody wants to finance it. Right. But the demand is still there. And that's the biggest issue is, you know, right now, I, you know, I think you had a, a very good, uh, there was a very good comment from the, Glen, uh, the CEO of Glencore where he was like, well, we, the, I'm, we're going by the Paris Accord. You told us that for the next to 2050, this is the goal. We have we have capital allocations to be to to fit your what you're telling me. So a year of pain is not going to be enough for us, us to change the the uh, the capital allocation, which is a great way of saying I told you so, and now I'm just going to do what you told me to do, and you're not going to like it, and I'm going to wait for you to blink before I change gears. So. I think at this point, there hasn't been, and it'll be very difficult to get the financing. And, and I think it becomes a much bigger issue too, because there's a lot of really, really cool uh, innovations that have, been, that have been created to capture flue gas and to take that flue gas and, turn, and to turn it into something else. And I think if we have a really hard look at you know, some of the better quality uh, coal, uh, a lot of it coming out of Australia, when if you take that, some of it, it burns pretty clean. And then if you if you layer in some additional, you know, carbon capture, some additional capturing, which yes, that'll cost additional money. But if I can turn around and tell you, well, we can capture everything that's coming out of there and we can turn that into an industrial gas. And you could take that industrial gas and you could do something with it. Now all of a sudden you start to create more of a of an economy, you create more of an incentive where I'm not just slapping something uh, something on it to lose money to call myself green. I'm putting something on it to capture it, to turn it into another product that I can turn around and sell. And, and I think that's when you have to look at, well, maybe coal is a solution. And, 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 I, and I do think it is. I, I think there is value in coal. I, I think that we have to be very serious about what is the geography, what is the availability of different products and does it make sense to have some coal capacity some solar capacity some wind some some natural gas like it doesn't have to be one or the other all or nothing it could just be a basket to address the underlying problem of reducing ga you know greenhouse gases in the world today do you think um imagine you were looking at australian coal producers which have had a big run out here on the stock mm -hmm. market do you think at some point the situation will arise where either the Australian government or the, there'll be pressure to go, look, you guys are not going to get 400 a ton and keep all the profits. We're going to put some sort of carbon tax on you or something like that to, or higher cost, or you've got to buy carbon credits in some way that is a risk as an equity investor. Uh, yes. I, I think on the longer term, that is going to be a, a bigger risk because they're going to look to try to get their pound of flesh. I think in the very near term, there's so much panic right now that nobody is thinking that because they want you to produce as much as you can, as quickly as you can, and, and take whatever you need. I think when there's the look back and they say, okay, well, how much was that? That's when you can start looking at carbon credits and, and the carbon that you're going to have to purchase. And that's why I think in, in getting in front of that, if you are a, a coal producer, if you're someone that you have to look at, well, 
I can take these windfalls that I'm going to have right now, and I can invest in some technology so that when they come and knock on my door and they can say, you need carbon credits, you're going to say, okay. And, and then they're going to look at you and be like, well, aren't you panicked? Like, aren't you concerned? And they're like, oh no, I've been investing in these different things. So I actually need probably 15% of the carbon credits that, that you think I do. And, and I'm going to be uh, fairly insulated. So I think it's just a matter of changing the message of, look, we have a place in this world. We have, we, we have an ability to deliver what we need and we can do it in a carbon greenhouse gas conscious way. And I, and I think that really has to be the message going forward because we need coke and coal. We, you know, we need met coal. We, we, we just do. Like, unless we find a new way to do steel, it's always going to be a necessity. You know, thermal may have it, you know, will ebb and flow. But when you look at the necessities that are required for producing steel, we have to come to an agreement with, well, how are we going to, uh, to deal with this going forward? One final question for you, because we've run um, quite a while. We had a guy on the other week who was talking about carbon credits and he said, well, you can invest directly in these things. You just, you can buy them and on the assumption that they're going to rise in price. Mm -hmm. Is that an investment case that you have looked at? Yes. Yeah. So I, I think that there is a lot to be said on, on carbon credits and, and making that market broader. So the, the biggest component that we've been looking at is finding ways to increase the amount of carbon available. Because if you look at, well, I should say carbon credits available. <laughs> because I mean, not, you know, carbon is the other way. So we, <laughs> you want to make those credits available because you want to manage price. You know, When you start looking at how you can gouge, you just have to look at what, what's happened in Europe. You know, and this is even before what happened with Russia, Ukraine. You saw carbon prices exploding. And it's like, all right, well, even if I, even though electricity prices are as high as they are, if I turn on this coal facility, I'm still going to lose money, even though that electricity price is telling me I should be able to turn on and make money. And it's because, again, as you said, the offsetting carbon was so expensive. So then the issue becomes making more carbon credits available. And I think you're going to have to see a much bigger um, avenue for, uh, for how is this classified? How can we make it more affordable so that we don't have these big run-ups and these big drops because you don't want to have to come in and say, okay, well, right now, because of what's happening, we're going to have a carbon credit holiday. And you're like, okay, well, what, what does that mean? Like, it, so, so then, then you have a holiday and then all of a sudden they're going to say, okay, the holiday is over. And it's like, nobody told me the holiday was ending. Like I, I usually know when this is ending. So if you can't plan your business, it's going to be very difficult. And, and I think the biggest, the biggest piece is making sure that you can plan your business and you have an idea of what's available and, and how it will be available. And I, and I don't have to worry about these huge run-ups. And, and at the same time, you could say, well, investing in carbon credits is, is increasing the speculation, increasing the problem. But I, at the same time, it's also adding liquidity. And, and I think that that's going to be a big piece. And, and you want to increase the amount of credits that is on a global basis, not just within location to make sure that prices stay reasonable. All righty, mate. That is, you've uh, been fantastic. Your knowledge of the industry you know, just shines through. It's great. So just to, to sum up for everybody, so at the moment you would say that no panic in the physical oil market, look for opportunity uh, around natural gas, uh, and you sound like you're fairly positive about Australia in general in terms of us being a, a natural commodity producer. Is that fair to say? Yes. 
Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a big buyer of Australia and on the commodity front. I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of ways that they're going to benefit, and not just into China, what whatever in shape, way, or form, but also into the ASEAN nations and being a key component of the the quote unquote quad in the Indo Pacific. And not only that, we're the home state of Bluey, so you must be extra positive. I, I, I mean, I'm going to tell my kids. I, I, I spoke. I spoke to Bluey's dad, and they're going to be like, "Oh, this is great." I'll take and, that because. Oh yeah, I mean, every time they drop something, they'll go, "Ah, oh, biscuits." So it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the home of Bluey. It's fantastic. Alrighty, bud. We'll leave it there, and uh, hopefully, we can catch up again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.